0: here, let's uh, turn the show over to our friend Tucker Carlson tonight.
1: Good evening and welcome to Tucker Carlson Tonight. There are an awful lot of forgotten little towns in this country, and Braddock, Pennsylvania is definitely one of them. It's only 11 miles outside Pittsburgh, but Braddock is basically empty at this point. Only 1,700 people live there. That's down from a population of more than 18,000 during the Second World War. Braddock is now so underpopulated that you can buy a four-bedroom home there with a two-car garage right in the middle of town for $3,000. Don't believe it? Check it out yourself on Realtor.com. So you know the story. For decades, the biggest employer in Braddock was manufacturing something called the Edgar Thompson Steelworks. In fact, Andrew Carnegie built it there, along with his first stone public library, which still stands. So for generations, Braddock, Pennsylvania was a real place. And then, inevitably, the steel plant closed. And the usual disasters arrived, unemployment, hopelessness, drugs, people left by the thousands. But one man saw an opportunity in Braddock, Pennsylvania, not an opportunity for the town, but an opportunity for himself. That man's name was John Fetterman. Fetterman was 35 years old and had never in his life had a real job. Fetterman was not from Braddock. Hardly, he grew up in an affluent neighborhood four hours away. Fetterman had spent his adult life going to school, first to business school, Then to Harvard for a so-called Master's of Public Policy, which for the uninitiated is an utterly meaningless document that you pay hundreds of thousands of dollars to get in order to tell people that you went to Harvard. But in Fetterman's case, it wasn't expensive at all. It was free. His dad paid for it and paid for everything else. As the Philadelphia Inquirer put it, for a long stretch, lasting well into his 40s, deep into middle age, Fetterman's main source of income came from his parents. They gave him and his family $54,000 in 2015 alone. In other words, John Fetterman was a classic trustafarian, a flaky middle-aged man looking for a purpose in life. And in Braddock, Pennsylvania, he found one. In 2005, a year after arriving in Braddock, Fetterman announced he was running for mayor. And amazingly, boldly, given that he was a professional student living off his rich family, John Fetterman decided to run as a blue-collar populist. But the media asked no questions. They loved it. In John Fetterman, the media saw themselves. He was just like them. So Fetterman narrowly won the race, and then the campaign to boost John Fetterman's career began in earnest. The Guardian newspaper described John Fetterman as the coolest mayor in the country. The New York Times told its readers, who didn't know any better, that John Fetterman had, quote, turned the busted town of Braddock, PA, into a national symbol of hope, hard work, and authentic blue jeans. Wow, how inspiring. Federman thought it was. He went on a national tour to brag about how he was single-handedly saving this benighted mill town in western Pennsylvania. He gave a TED Talk, of course he did, about how he was running Braddock using the lessons that he learned at Harvard. In 2011, he went, of course he did, to the Aspen Ideas Festival to further brag. Here's what he said, quote, We created the first art gallery in the four-town region with artist studios. We did public art installations. And I don't know if you consider it art exactly, but I consider growing organic vegetables in the shadow of a steel mill an art. And that has attracted homesteading. (laughs) It's so perfect. Homesteading, organic vegetables, art installations. And also, again, inevitably, a heaping dose of climate theology, all imported from Harvard. So Fetterman imposed on a town with no jobs carbon caps on Braddock, Pennsylvania. And he claimed these carbon caps would somehow, he never explained how, bring more manufacturing jobs back. He called this initiative carbon caps equals hard hats. So expensive, unreliable energy will mean more manufacturing jobs. And yet somehow no one laughed at him. So John Fetterman kept going. In a 2009 advertisement for himself, he promised that, quote, with a smart economically viable carbon cap policy in place. Communities like Braddock can begin to build its manufacturing and middle-class back up. This whole notion that we can continue to operate as we have been and ignore climate change is ludicrous. <laughs> they loved it at the Aspen Institute. And to be fair, John Fetterman did not ignore climate change. He talked about climate change endlessly. He made climate change the centerpiece of his administration in Braddock, Pennsylvania. As for actually running the town or improving the town of Braddock, he was not interested, not even a little bit interested, and that's provable. As mayor, according to public records obtained by the Washington Free Beacon, Fetterman missed more than a third of the borough's monthly meetings. He was off at the Aspen Institute. In his entire tenure as the mayor of Braddock, John Fetterman cast just a single vote at a city council meeting, and it was a meaningless one. It was a procedural vote for borough president. So what happened next? This is always our favorite part of the story. What were the results? How did Braddock, Pennsylvania fare under the leadership of John Fetterman? That's really the only question that matters. And again, we want to be as fair and objective as we can be. So we're going to tell you that under his tenure as mayor of Braddock, Pennsylvania, the seas did not rise. That is true. Braddock is still on dry land. Of course, it's very far from the ocean, but it's still dry. So his climate policy worked. He can be proud of that. Unfortunately, everything else fell apart in Braddock. People kept fleeing. Braddock's population is currently at its lowest level ever recorded. The median income in Braddock, Pennsylvania, is $14,000 a year. More than a third of households in Braddock live below the poverty line. Braddock, by the way, has one of the highest crime rates in the state of Pennsylvania. In 2018, shortly after Fetterman left office, Braddock's per capita murder rate was higher than it is in some of the most dangerous countries in the world. Honduras and Belize are safer than Braddock, Pennsylvania. So that's a failure. And in a functioning system, a record like this would have disqualified John Fetterman from ever running for anything again. He failed demonstrably as a leader. It had a higher murder rate than Honduras and the lowest population ever
0: recorded. Sorry, climate change didn't improve. Okay, so what do you think the demographics of, of Braddock, Pennsylvania are? I'm just going to go out on a limb here. I, I'm I want to s- stop being so, so partisan. I don't think that the challenges of Braddock, Pennsylvania, are primarily due to the administration or lack thereof of uh, John Fetterman. So, Braddock, Pennsylvania, is 71% black, 18% white. Right? I, I just think it's it's obvious that. Uh, uh, Braddock's main problems uh, are due to uh, white racism, but they certainly not due to uh, John Fetterman. Move the town.
1: So in a fair system, a system that cared about achievement, a meritocratic system, John Fetterman would be leaving politics on the express train and moving on to something like interpretive dance. Try that. Maybe get his dad to pay for ski lessons and move to Aspen or something. But we don't have a functioning meritocracy much less a functioning political system. We have a very broken one. So John Fetterman set his sights even higher. Having wrecked Braddock, he became lieutenant governor, and now he plans to run for the United States Senate. What's he going to do if he gets there? Well, his idea is to make the entire state of Pennsylvania and the entire country much more like Braddock, with much higher crime rates. And we're not making that up. Here he is, John Fetterman, in 2020 as lieutenant governor, fantasizing about giving amnesty to thousands of violent criminals
2: Including murderers. If you had a magic wand and you could wave it and
3: fix one thing, what would it be? Life without parole in Pennsylvania. We could save billions in revenue long term. We could save thousands of, of lives and, and not make anyone less safe. And also expunges many permanent records of people that have been living their best lives and have been paying well beyond when they should have for a charge that they caught, you know, 10, 15, 20 years ago.
1: So in huge parts of Pennsylvania, which is a big state, real state filled with really nice people, and it was an economic powerhouse for more than 100 years, in huge parts of that state, there are no jobs. There is poverty, there is hopelessness, and there are huge numbers of drug ODs. That state's been devastated by opioids, by fentanyl. But John Fetterman, if he had one wish, if he could make one change to the state of Pennsylvania, he'd let the murderers out. Right. That's who he cares about. So in Pennsylvania, typically, if you commit murder, you get life in prison, as you should. You're not allowed to kill people. But Fetterman would change that. He'd like you out of jail as quickly as possible. Talk about a rich kid concern, by the way. No actual populist or actual working class person talks like this, worries about punishing murderers too much. Maybe if you achieved the first 115 things on your to-do list, you'd worry about, are the murderers serving too much time in prison? That'd be after you got people jobs, after you convinced their children to stay in the state where they were born, after you fixed the fact that thousands are dying of drug ODs. Only rich kids think like that. And by the way, only rich kids wear hoodies to political events. I'm a working man, I'm wearing a hoodie. No working man actually wears a hoodie to a political event, all your stupid little fake tattoos. It's a costume, of course. Duh, it's not real. But John Fetterman, inspired by his time at Harvard and the Aspen Institute, would like to free a third of the prison population
3: in Pennsylvania. And it's just for starters. Watch. I was on a panel with Secretary Wetzel uh, earlier before the pandemic hit. And he said something remarkable that I agree with. He said, we could reduce our prison population by a third, and not make anyone less safe in Pennsylvania. And that's a profound statement. It's not a profound statement. It's absurd. It's ridiculous.
1: It's a profound statement. Where do you even learn to talk like this? It's a profound statement, says the hoodie guy. You're an idiot. You've never had a job. And you wrecked the town that you ran. You didn't even show up at council meetings. What? Climate change. Let the murderers out. Let We'll have a much safer society when we let the incorrigibly violent Rome among us. Right. This is the guy who made of Pennsylvania, more dangerous than Honduras. And, of course, the point is not simply to wreck what he inherited, what we all inherited. It's to change the state forever for his own political benefit. The point is to flood the state of Pennsylvania with brand new voters, all of them loyal to the Democratic Party. More voter fraud, please. Fetterman has been in lockstep with the leaders of his party on that question from the very beginning, and that's why...
0: Okay, there's no evidence that uh, illegal immigrants are voting en masse, all right? There's no evidence that we have massive amounts of voter fraud in the United States. We may well have voter fraud, but no one has done a good job presenting evidence. So I'm enjoying Tucker Carlson here, but... The, the welfare of Braddock, which we're looking at some lovely video of Braddock, Pennsylvania, has uh, almost nothing to do with uh, John Fetterman. All right. Its problems lie elsewhere. Right, Fetterman's not the, the white savior of Braddock. Yeah. Okay. He would
1: like to get rid of all barriers to voter fraud, including and especially voter ID, as soon as possible.
0: So the question is. How much does voter ID deter voter fraud? Common sense suggests very effective. But is there evidence for that? I mean, just on a commonsensical basis, yeah. I, I think uh, voter ID is is a good idea. I'm all for voter ID. But I'm not going to lie and say, oh, the evidence is really strong that uh, without voter ID, we're just going to have massive amounts of voter fraud.
3: In my own state, they are going to pass, uh, attempt to pass a, a constitutional amendment making sure that universal voting ID for every time you vote, not just when you sign up to vote, but every time you vote, because they understand that at any given time there's tens of thousands of Pennsylvanians who typically typically are on the, uh, the, the poorer side and, and are people of color that are less likely to have their ID at any one given time.
1: So poor people don't have IDs? Really? Because everyone who lives in our society over the age of 18 has a government-issued ID because you can't live here otherwise. And you can't collect any government benefits without one. You can't do anything without one. So that's a lie. He's affirmatively abetting
0: voter. Okay, the chat says, how can there be evidence of something that hasn't been tried? Uh, many countries have voter ID laws, right? American voting laws frequently differ by county and city and state. So, there is abundant evidence about what effect voter ID laws have on voter fraud, and even though i 'm all for voter ID laws, there's no evidence that that will make a significant difference. Also, giving people some universal voting card, right people who are too stupid to be able to get their act together to carry ID around with them. oh, so they're just now they're going to remember now they're going to remember to carry their their universal voter ID around. I don't think so. ...fraud.
1: Now, we should tell you that the clips we just played were John Spetterman, Fetterman speaking before he had, and we say this with no glee, but instead with deep sympathy, a massive stroke. His campaign says the stroke occurred shortly before he won the Democratic state primary in
0: May. Whenever it happened or whatever... So, Lepodia says, how many people would forge an ID to vote? okay that is a, a great question good sir let's delve more deeply into that wonderful provocative thoughtful on target on point the question of the day goes to Laponius because uh glib medley hasn't shown up yet so Laponius is just winning winning the, the question of the day so how many people forge ids so that they can vote so let's look at the incentives okay Let's say you forge an ID to vote. On the upside, your favorite candidate gets one whole extra vote. Wow! One whole extra vote. Whoa! That could just change the whole trajectory of a county, a city, a state, a nation, a universe, a metaverse. Wow! You forge ID to vote. All right? You get... One more vote for your favorite candidate. Wow. Now, what are the downsides for voter fraud? Oh, you become, if convicted, a convicted felon, and you can go to prison for five years. So prison for five years, get a permanent criminal record, become a convicted felon. On the other hand, your favorite candidate may be able to get one extra vote. So where are the incentives? Obviously the incentives are 1000 times as bad for getting caught messing around with voter fraud to whatever amount of good you think you can do for your candidate so yeah i am living here under a flex alert i'm living here under oppressive liberalism so so pause pause and and have some have some sympathy for forty here i'm living under oppressive liberalism and you know how bad the liberalism here is in california I got a text message. I got a text message. I was I was carrying on with my day, just like a a good orthodox Jew, like a, a diligent servant of humanity, just doing my thing, and I get a text message. This is a flex alert. The power is ours to help stop an outage now. Conserve energy by delaying laundry until the morning. Learn more at. And it gives a link. Wow, this liberalism is so oppressive, and and the governor of our state, he he made a video that he put on social media, asking California citizens to restrict their their use of power during during uh, flex time between between 4 p.m. and uh, 9 p.m. It's just unbelievably oppressive. The libs, man. That they just got their thumb on the scale they're just really sticking it to us man they sent me a text message asking me to conserve power between 4 p.m. and 9 p.m. and then here i am live streaming and i've got lights and my god i'm i'm not being a good a good californian right now but uh, you're probably wondering forty you know what temperature is your air conditioning set at well i've got a portable air conditioner it is set at 60 degrees. It is about 95 degrees out right now. And let's go see what the temperature is in 40 space, the temperature in 40 space is 81 degrees. So they they asked me to turn my air condition down to 78. Well, it's 81 degrees here. So to, to that extent, all right, I, I, I'm being a good citizen. I've got good quality air. How, how do you like those those numbers for the high quality of the air that I'm breathing? We've got the best air quality here, don't we folks at the the 40 Inst- International Institute for Human Flourishing and Wellness. We've just got we just got the, the best quality air here. I'm I'm being a good diligent citizen and let's go to the chat. Yeah, bro, the Libs in the world's foremost superpower asking people to use less electricity because they allowed millions of illegals in and the grid can't support that. Well, that's a fair criticism. So while well, Laponius is just bringing the high-quality comments today, but that's a diss on Laponius. I mean, the dude brings the, the high-quality content, the high-quality challenges, the, the high-quality observations day in, day out. And the best part of Laponius Meridius Maximus is that he always does it with an uplifting positive message. I mean, he's not some dude who just go around goes around on Twitter you know calling you know people clowns and, and idiots. I mean, Laponius is the type of bloke who likes to look on on the bright side of life. He he believes in like steel manning other people's arguments. He's he's, he's always reaching out to try to find the best in people, even people with whom he, he passionately disagrees. Like Laponius is not one of those all too common people who once they go online, right, just become, you know, someone totally different. Laponius is impervious, all right, to online derangement syndrome. He, he's impervious to the perils of the e-personality. When Laponius goes online, does he become more self aggrandizing? No, he's always a very humble bloke. right Does he become more narcissistic? Oh guys, look at me. No, no. Laponius is purely about the values, about the philosophy, about right and wrong. right That's what Laponius is about. Does Laponius when he goes online and starts commenting does does he become more spontaneous? Does he take things to to a dark place? No. Right, Laponius Meridius Maximus, you may disagree with his politics here or there, but one thing you cannot disagree with, Laponius is overwhelmingly a force for light and for love <laughs> in the world. Funny, <laughs> says, I hate people who disagree with me, bro. I'm like this in real life too. Well, bro, luckily you have found the 40 International Institute for Human Flourishing and Wellness, and you are just the type of bloke that we have designed our 17-point program for. And just this week only, you can get this program for 50% off. So let's have a look here at the the LA Times, Liberal LA Times, man. Oh, wow. So the Liberal LA Times is slamming the top candidate for mayor in LA, the most left-wing candidate for mayor, the candidate who's running against someone, Rick Russo, who's basically a Republican. And the LA Times is focusing on corruption charges against her. Karen Bass got a USC degree for free. So, I mean, she's like pro-Castro. I mean, quite left-wing. It's now pulling her into a federal corruption case. Prosecutors say LA mayoral candidate Karen Bass's scholarship and her dealings with USC are critical to a case about corruption at the university. So here we've got a left-wing newspaper slamming the leading left-wing candidate for mayor in Los Angeles, so that's that's one reason why I subscribe to the L.A. Times, right? overwhelmingly a left-wing newspaper, but yeah, at times they they're willing to to point it out when uh, you know when, when the left are accused of corruption as well. So we got some. Yesterday's forty show was all about forty, who is a genius of himself. Duvid's 40 gift mic works better than 40s. Oof, Art Bell. Wow, you are, you are no doubt the sage of the 40 International Institute for Human Flourishing and Wellness. I mean, we are just surrounded by sages and philosophers and raconteurs. I mean, we have the best people here, do we not, folks? We just got the best.
1: ...or caused it, the stroke has been profound and has rendered Fetterman unable to speak coherently. And again, we're not being mean. We say this with sympathy, but it's true. Because it's not just about John Fetterman and how he's feeling. It's about the country he hopes to control if elected to the United States Senate. And so it's bad. It's really bad. Here he was campaigning recently in Pittsburgh, for example.
3: Just earlier today, I was so proud to march with you in downtown Pittsburgh. Labor Day. Happy Labor Day. Send me to Washington, D.C. to send so I can work with Senator Casey and I can champion the union way of life in Jersey, excuse me, in D.C. Thank you. Thank you very much. And it's an honor. I live eight minutes away from here. And when I leave tonight, I got three miles away. Dr. Oz in his mansion in New Jersey. You've got a friend and you have an ally. Send me to Washington, (sighs) D.C.
1: You know, it's not even worth making fun of. It's sad. But when cognition goes, when the ability to think clearly disappears, and in his case it obviously has, what's left? The talking points. That's all that remains. And that's all he has. The talking points. The union way of life. This is a kid who lived off his parents until he was in his mid-40s. What? He's never been in a union? What are you even talking about, you fraud? So not surprisingly, Fetterman has refused up until today to schedule a debate with his opponent, Dr. Oz. Just hours ago, he announced he's willing to debate. But no details are forthcoming. Sometime in mid-October, of course, when the early voting has already been well in progress. It's starting now, by the way, the early voting in Pennsylvania. So if you delay the debate till right before the election, it's irrelevant because people have already voted. Only Democrats seem to understand this. He doesn't even talk to the media at this point because he can't. In some cases, here's one, his staffers won't even let him answer questions that he has posed. Watch this.
4: Hey,
5: John,
1: are you afraid to debate Dr. Oz? Are you afraid to debate Dr. Oz?
4: Thank you,
3: John.
1: Are, are you going to debate him? He's, he's offered five <laughs> debates. Are you going to debate him? His hoodie and his fraudulent tattoos. I mean, th- th- honestly, this is like the barista in Brooklyn dressing like a lumberjack. Oh, please, go back to Oberlin, you fake. So there's a huge problem here. The guy can't talk, okay? And even CNN has acknowledged that. John Fetterman, a candidate for the U.S. Senate, cannot speak. Watch.
6: Members of the United Steelworkers Tuesday, Fetterman was on message, but often halting in his speech and occasionally dropped words mid-sentence.
3: Being anti-union is anti-American. What is wrong with demanding for an easy, safe kind of their income, a path to a safe place for them to win, or excuse me, to, to work. He's getting He's getting to
6: Fetterman declined to answer questions from CNN and other reporters at the event.
1: So we can go on and on and play you more tape, but it's just awful, and nobody wants to watch that. We don't want to play it for you. We just want to make the point, this guy is completely impaired. That's not some kind of Republican talking point. It's completely real. So think about what that means. The Democratic Party has not replaced him. This has been going on since he got the nomination, but he's still in the race. That is shocking, and it's insulting, not simply to voters in Pennsylvania, but to the rest of us.
0: It's it's shocking. It, it's a shonda. Now, there was a comment. There have been a lot of negative comments in the chat about the problematic nature of my sound quality. And don't you know that 91% of communication is nonverbal, right? Those, those, those problematic times with, with my sound quality, that, that was a message, all right? It's like when you email someone and they don't email you back and you say, oh, they won't answer me. Well, no email is an answer. And when my sound counts out, that's when it's time for the rest of me to communicate we don't need we don't need words like what what we've got it, it transcends words it's it, it's a gesture it's a it's a glance it's uh it's a state of being like here at the 40 Institute for 40 International Institute for Human Flourishing and Wellness we have transcended words we have transcended logic we have transcended these bourgeois concerns we are operating on a higher plane we are operating one up on, on on the plebs oh that felt really good you ready to feel really good i know i'm ready to feel really good let's feel really good together and uh let, let's let's shift away from all that negativity all right <laughs> different people have different gifts sound tech is not a gift to the 40 possesses mm-hmm. <laughs> elliot says accurate criticism makes us better the democrats are awesome they just wag it and twerk it in your face <laughs> oh man so much good stuff i mean where do i begin but uh what the heck is, is going on with, the, with our Black Cities? It uh, it sure looks like they're steadily depopulating. And I've done some serious investigation. And, and by the way, I want you to know it's now 84 degrees in here. So I am really doing my bit to make sure that the power does not go out in, in California. But if this show dies... I feel good knowing that you are here and that you can carry on the work, that, that you are you are somebody who, who believes in good values. And I know that even if the power goes out, right? I may not get there with you, but I have a dream that one day people from the, the 40 International Institute for Human Flourishing, will go out into the streets and to the, the, the byways and the highways and, and bring our message of radical love and inclusion, right? I have a dream that we are going to create the, these communities, these high-trust communities that are going to steadily expand as, as people see the higher quality of life within uh, these communities with, the, with the, all the human flourishing and wellness going on, all right? And... I have a dream, and I may not get there with you the 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 power may go out. the sun might go down on me, but together I'll be with you in spirit, all right. We will journey to the promised land of, of radical love and inclusion. We will get to a place where we can celebrate our differences, where the idea that different peoples have different gifts no longer is so scary where we can appreciate that uh, the, the gifts of Ashkenazi Jews are somewhat different from the gifts of Japanese, and the the gifts of the Portuguese are different from the, the gifts of the, you know, native indigenous Mexican or the African American and the, the West African frequently has uh, different gifts from the East African. So I may not get there with you. They may take my power at any time. So that's why I feel this urgency. But I have a dream. Okay. Democracy dies in California power outages. <laughs> it's not depopulation, they're killing each other. <laughs> Shrimpzoo was fired at Amazon's warehouse for taking five to seven minutes to run a football field to pee, wash hands and run back. Okay, Shrimpzoo made a video. Guess what? When people make videos, including this one, they're not necessarily telling you the whole truth. Do you really think this guy was just a high productive, honest forthright uh, worker for Amazon that he had a very solid record that he had a good effect on other people? that he he was widely admired, that he had a high productivity rate. And just because it took him seven minutes to run the length of a football field, have a poo and wash his hands and come back, therefore just for no reason whatsoever, Amazon just fired him for for no reason whatsoever. So this guy was previously, I don't know, it's entirely possible. I, I have known nothing about this guy, but it's entirely possible that this guy was fired from 109 jobs in the past. And you're going to say, oh, 40. Yeah, he, he you know, was fired from 109 jobs in the past, but it was never his fault. Amazon Amazon just got rid of this guy for absolutely no reason whatsoever just because he took seven minutes to make a poo and run 300 yards and wash his hands. The mark is going out well before the power. The, the communication, all right, The 91% of my communication is not in words. It's in my aura. It's in my chakras, can't you see how open my chakras are? Can't you see the crystalline quality of my aura? How how it is it is blue and and grey that that this is not an aura that that's brown and and orange. But this is YouTube land. Will forty get a backup power supply? No, I will just go on with my life. All right I, I don't have to stream to feel alive. I, I live this this rich, variegated life. Isn't that a great word, variegated, where I could go outside it, for a walk in this 100-degree temperatures, or I could take a cold shower, or I could read a book, but though honestly, I don't do a lot of productive reading when it's about uh, 100 degrees. Power outages were a regular part of my childhood. I don't understand the panic. Yeah, I mean, Elliot Black, when he was growing up, he had to walk seven miles through the snow one way just to get to school. How is blackout still an allowable term? Elliot survived 109 power outages. 40s or glows like the most beautiful sapphire. <laughs> so much love so much love in the room today if I was like I'd be going shirtless oh I remember that that's like more acceptable in Australia like down under if you're thirsty you can like walk onto your neighbor's property and just you know get the hose and, and have a drink and you're not not going to get get shot and uh, no I don't have any nipple piercings no no piercings no no tattoos I'm, I'm a good orthodox boy but i remember in, in la about uh 20 years ago it was a hot day it was like 100 degrees and we all came back to this woman's apartment and i, I took off my shirt and she said no 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 that's that's inappropriate so uh, it's right in, in australia bank managers wear shorts right if it's hot bank managers will wear dress shorts dress shoes socks and a dress shirt right so wearing shorts is perfectly acceptable so this australian professor got transferred from avondale college in new south wales to pacific union college in the napa valley and the first day he went to teach in september he he shows up in 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 dress shorts and everybody laughed at him i remember i worked at pacific union college and it wasn't something just unique to pacific union college even in the summer like even if it's 105 degrees out you are not allowed to work in shorts you have to wear long pants so in america like wearing shorts is considered disrespectful i mean let alone you know shirt off so in many ways australia is a less less formal society than even california Women aren't okay with shirtless guys because it arouses them uncontrollably. (laughs) Okay, so what the heck is going on? I've done some investigation. Why is it that so many of the black cities are depopulating? And I've found some stunning information. Apparently, there are at least four types of people who don't want to live in black cities. Uh, Apparently, white people don't want to live in in black cities apparently latino americans don't want to live in black cities apparently asian americans don't want to live in black cities and most shockingly of all apparently black people don't want to live in black cities and so i'm reading who's that sociologist is it florida or What's his name? That uh, how important it is for for inner city black kids to you know get out of a black environment. Well, it's uh, quite disturbing that yeah everyone who can afford to moves away from black cities. It I can only blame white racism. That must be the the problem. So Jackson is the capital of uh, Mississippi and uh has has some problems with its its water supply, and I was thinking they can't kind of seem to maintain maintain their infrastructure in many of these black cities. And then I'm thinking about South Africa, okay after the end of apartheid uh South Africa started having a lot of difficulty. Uh, MAINTAINING ITS INFRASTRUCTURE. JACKSON,
4: MISSISSIPPI so IS I'm WORSENING think. AS RESIDENTS THERE AND its A FOURTH DAY without CLEAN have WATER. I mean, CAN YOU
6: BELIEVE THAT? FOUR DAYS? Stop. It's oh, four STUNNING. Days. A boil stunning. WATER ADVISORY wow. IS IN EFFECT FOR MORE THAN 150,000 wow. PEOPLE ACROSS THE CITY.
5: Jackson is the largest city in Mississippi,
6: 80% of the population black, and it's becoming pretty clear now that floods may have triggered this water crisis, but advocates like our next guest say it's environmental racism that's making it worse. Mustafa Santiago Ali is executive vice president of the National Wildlife Federation. He's also the founder and CEO of Revitalization Strategies, working as a strategist and policymaker for environmental justice. Good to see you, Dr. Ali.
0: Thank you, Dr. Ali. Thank you for having me, Karis.
4: Nice to be with you.
6: Well, you have worked with more than 500 domestic and international communities. What do you make of what's going on right now in Jackson, Mississippi?
4: Wow. Well, it's a tragedy that's happening. It's an emergency that's going on that did not have to happen. We've known about the impacts that were happening to the water infrastructure in Jackson, and there has been inaction by so many. Uh, especially those in in the state house uh, and others who have refused to make the investments that are necessary to protect people's lives. We have to be very careful in this moment. We don't want to make Jackson a sacrifice zone. You know, Jackson's uh, motto is Jackson is a city with soul. The question becomes, are we going to protect those souls? Those 80% African-Americans who are living there along with the other brothers.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's, uh, it's obviously environmental racism why the, these uh, black black communities can't seem to maintain infrastructure. I mean, basically it comes down to Whitey, right? So
1: the state of California is of great interest to anyone who wants to know the future of the rest of the country because it's like a metaphor for America more broadly. Like our country, California has a lot of energy. In fact, there's enough energy in California to power the entire United States, just like in the broader U.S. We've got enough energy. We're just not using it. And that means that tonight, everyone who owns a cell phone in the state of California is getting texts telling them not to use electricity because they're about to have blackouts. So the question is, what's gonna happen next? Will the state of California be able to keep electricity flowing through the outlets? Seems like kind of a basic requirement of civilization to us. We don't know what's gonna happen. Trace Gallagher might, he's been following the story. Hey Trace.
7: Hey, Tucker, you're right. Late in the day here in California, and it's hot, and we are back again in emergency energy territory. For days now, we've been teetering between levels 2 and 3. That's the most severe, and it means big-time potential for what the state calls power curtailments. You and I would know them better as blackouts or rolling power outages. Of course, the theory behind the turning the power off on a rolling basis is to make sure the entire grid doesn't fail, leaving millions in the dark in dangerous heat for days on end. On top of the heat wave, there's a few other problems with California's already failing grid system. Hydropower is down because water levels are down. Solar power is up, which helps during the day. But the state does not have enough battery power to store solar, so it's use it or lose it. That's why most of the time, and especially at night, the grid is powered by good old fossil fuels. And during this record heat, we have learned that Governor Gavin Newsom is just really cool. So cool that he wore a fleece jacket in what he said was a 78-degree room. Today, he skipped the winter attire, but explained why he is, to quote a phrase, Cool beyond words. Pre-cool your home and make sure that that thermostat's above 78 degrees. Still feels cool beyond words. I walked in at 78 degrees and felt like I needed a jacket uh, because of the distinction uh, between the elements outside and on the inside. Record heat. He's cool. Even in record heat. Tucker.
1: He certainly is. Trish Gallagher.
0: So when I'm kicking back, reading a book, e- eating a meal, I like the temperature about 76, 77 degrees. But if I'm doing hard work, like producing a high quality, intellectually stimulating, morally sturdy, like philosophically sound presentation like this show, then ideally I would like it about 65 degrees. So the harder I'm working, the cooler I want it. Okay, let, let's get more information on just environmental just there. racism. Are
4: we going to be willing to, to make the investments? Are we going to be able to actually come together to make real change happen? We know the history throughout the South in relationship to the disinvestment in Black communities historically. We don't have to hold on to the sins of the past. We can actually move forward.
0: I think he nails it, all right? We, we've got to stop disinvesting in Black communities. Why hasn't anyone ever brought this up before? Like, instead of disinvesting in black communities, I've got a radical idea. Let's invest in black communities. Like, ask not what black America can do for you. Ask what you can do for black America. Like, I have a dream that within 10 years, you know, all blacks and all people of color will have equal wealth and equal academic accomplishments and equal life results and equal crime rates with whites and Asians. Uh, Are you there? Are you there with me? Can I hear an amen? Are there man boobs and a rubber tire on 40? Or was it all repaired by the beef organ pills? Man, I just had a John Fetterman moment. Immortality thanks to my uh beef organ pills so i i want you to know that i did how many pull-ups did i do today so i do two at a time i did four sets of two pull-ups so i did eight pull-ups this morning so i only go out at about uh, 6 a.m these days during we've had a heat wave here for a week all right this is kind of unprecedented i'd be it's not so much that it's like 95 degrees in Los Angeles but overall California is baking and what's going on in Sacramento is is kind of interesting right Sacramento has had its driest wettest and hottest uh months spells in the last 12 months right i mean that's interesting and i used to live near Sacramento Right, I lived about 40 minutes north of Sacramento. So California's capital, Sacramento, hit 116 degrees yesterday. And uh, that's pretty hot. So I remember when I lived in the Sacramento area, we would have 30-plus days of more than 90-degree uh, temperatures. So, okay. Let's get back to... Our, our subject. All right. Environmental racism. Jackson, the capital of Mississippi, didn't have running water last week. And yeah, why is it these problems kind of the same as what happened in South Africa after the end of apartheid? So after the end of apartheid in South Africa, the average life expectancy dropped 10 years. Now, this is because of, you know, huge rates of HIV. And, and now it's restored its life expectancy to the same as what South Africa had before the end of apartheid but you would expect with all the advances in medical technology etc and all the advances in social justice and all the improvements they're making with environmental racism that the life expectancy would be going up so now water pressure has been restored to jackson remember this was very much on the mind of rustin like rustin was was really concerned about what was going on in jackson mississippi it made him quite pessimistic about the future of america so unhappy residents in Jackson are still being instructed to boil their tap water. So the Washington Post explains the reason that 83% black Jackson can't keep its water running is, can you guess? It's white people, but it's white people who aren't around anymore, right? White then black residents abandoned Jackson propelling its water crisis. Now, if white people moved into Jackson, that would be a problem because that would be gentrification. All right, so if white people move to a black community, that is problematic because it's gentrification. If white people leave a community, that's problematic because that's white flight. So apparently Jackson's infrastructure problems are rooted in decades of racism. And who says that? Historians and infrastructure experts... Like uh, this very impressive man, Dr. Ali.
4: And make sure that we are doing the things that are necessary to protect people's health, uh, to also make sure that we are helping to strengthen their economic situation, uh, and to get ready to deal with the climate crisis that we see each and every day now.
6: All right, so you've named it. It's not a new problem. Uh, Jackson's dealt with years.
0: Finally, like finally, people are willing to name the problem. The problem's Whitey. Like thank god the media silence the media blockade against any criticism of white people is finally starting to crumble at least on the edges All right finally people are willing to name whitey Does Luke do any cardio Yeah I do I get on my exercise bike I do 5 to 10 miles most every day and I'm not terribly fast, so I, I typically bike along six to ten miles an hour while watching a movie documentary uh I'm watching the uh house of dragons right the the new the new prequel to Game of Thrones so and when it's not hundred degrees outside, I also like to walk uh, a couple of miles at least every day all right. So white flight began in the 1970s, Hmm. but the uh, black takeover... Oh, this is the state capital. Yeah, Jackson's the state capital of, of Mississippi. You would think that a black takeover of the state capital would create Wakanda. Well, you would be wrong, right? So apparently the city's infrastructure problems began at the same time that white people left. And why did white people leave? Because federal courts forced Jackson schools to desegregate. So thousands of white families moved out of the city, sending their children to private schools. Wow, these evil white people. You can't live with them, you can't live without them, says Steve Saylor here. The city's decline has then prompted better off black residents to escape Jackson's failing infrastructure, not just water, but also roads and schools. So why is it that all these black cities have crumbling infrastructure. So the middle class, the white, black, fleeing Jackson, the remaining residents of Jackson are increasingly made up of the dregs of society. The city has the worst homicide rate of any of the 200 biggest cities in 2021, right? Twice as bad as Detroit. So maybe if Jackson wanted to attract better quality people, the residents of Jackson should stop murdering. They should maybe cut down on the raping and the grievous bodily harm and the breaking and entering and the armed robbery, right? Jackson, cut down on the murder rate and you might be able to attract better quality people to your community. But I guess I'm just speaking from white privilege. So a black man trying to live to 70 years of age in Jackson has over a 10% chance of getting murdered. Now, the population of Jackson is only three-quarters of what it was in 1980. And it keeps going down, down 17% from 2000 to 2020. And there is absolutely nothing unique about how Black Jackson, Black-run Jackson, is depopulating because the same process is happening in a lot of other Black American cities, right? The the Five blackest cities here that Steve Saylor is looking at have all lost at least one-sixth of their population over the past two decades. So apparently when the black share of the population in a city goes up, the homicide rate goes up and people leave. Uh, East St. Louis right, has gone down from 82,000 people in 1950 to 18,000 in 2020. Detroit, Its population has gone down from 1,850,000 to 639,000. So 1,850,000 in 1950 to 639,000 in 2020. So... In the South, conservative southern states tend to have more pro-big city laws, making it easier for the urban core municipality to take over suburbs, even against their will. But in more liberal northern states, they don't allow the inner cities to plunder their tax-rich suburbs through annexation. So how does the United States avoid more urban death spirals of the kind seen in Jackson? How do we make it more in the interest of non-blacks to help urban blacks by supplying needed taxes and competence? Well, the single most positive step toward encouraging other races to want to live in cities with lots of blacks would be for blacks to lower their murder rate, which is currently about an order of magnitude higher than the white rate. Now maybe maybe they just dropped it to the Latino rate, which is just double the white rate. But instead, our leaders keep egging on black bad behavior. So if the elites don't knock off their irresponsibility, we can look forward to many more Jacksons. Michael Beckley on the emerging conflict with China.
4: Things came to fruition that really started to change the debate. And then things, of course, really take off under the Trump presidency which i think is really the first presidential administration to adopt a sort of neo containment strategy towards china to really start turning the screw so by by you know fits and starts the united states eventually came around to getting tough with china but a number of factors intervened along the way
8: as i understand it you believe that many policymakers and other experts have a flawed understanding of the us china geopolitical competitive relationship Hal, could you explain what's flawed about the general consensus, how you view the relationship and how your view of the relationship contextualizes the argument you make in your book?
9: Yeah, they're basically overbought on the China rise narrative. And and so I think the prevailing wisdom is kind of the China is number one wisdom in a way that's kind of an echo of the Japan is number one wisdom back from the, the late 80s and early 90s. And it basically runs along these lines, which is that China has experienced breathtaking economic growth, which has underwritten a phenomenal military buildup. There's every reason to expect those trends to continue. And so it's just a matter of time until China passes the United States as the world's leading economy and and develops global influence uh, to match. Our argument is that that is...
0: Okay, let's uh, welcome uh, Duvid into the show. So David, how's it going? Rokashem. Rokashem. So anything you've uh, been thinking about or you've heard on the show so far that you wanted to comment on? Yeah, I
10: mean God forbid, uh, you know, I'm a civil engineer and you're know, part of my lead into uh you know, seeing America's god forbid not good things happening is uh the degradation of our infrastructure. And I think I mentioned, uh, you know, related to, uh, you know, the likelihood of uh, balkanization or America splitting up, that it would probably be power outages that would, uh, you know, crumbling of the roads. So, you know, Michigan, we have a really bad problem with the roads. Governor Whitmore ran on fixing the roads, which he really didn't do. Um, And there's no, you know, very few engineers in the government Um, in Michigan, there's a group called SEMCOG, Southeastern Michigan Coalition of Governments that publishes reports and has a grading of the infrastructure. And it's bad. It's really bad. Uh, you know, like the, the bridges, the roads, uh, all sorts of stuff. It's like, you know, D minus grade level in America. Um, you know, I, I talked about a week in review, God forbid, after the condo collapse in Florida, that, uh. Most of America's infrastructure is uh, past its useful lifetime. You know, like my house here in Michigan, you know, I'm doing some repairs, but you know, like houses last 40, 50 years and then start having a series of problems and you could keep on pumping money into them. Uh, but you know, like to a certain extent, you, they're not really made to uh, last that long. And uh, that's the state of current uh, infrastructure. Uh, You're know, probably L.A. all across America. It's the same story. So, you know, just hearing your power situation, it's probably vaguely related to, like, the war in Ukraine and energy prices, uh, but, you know, like, peak oil over usage. And Edward Dutton, um, you know, just to wrap it up on, um, you know, when, when I spoke with him, the main thing he wanted to stress to me was this reverse Flynn effect. And I actually got Flynn's books on, like, the, you know, the in the 20s or 30s where IQ was increasing, like, two or three points every decade. And Dutton, one of his main thesis is this reverse effect that IQs are decreasing by two or three points every decade for the last few decades. And one of the consequences of that is that we're not going to be able to, capable to maintain and run society that was built up by smarter people. And, uh, you know, there's a handful of smart people that keep on pushing forward new technology, uh, gadgets, electronics. Uh, but just the basic infrastructure, uh, you know, if Edward Dutton's thesis is correct, uh, that we're just not smart enough to, uh, you, know, you know, to hold our society together, God forbid.
0: And uh, what do you make of the, the, the death spiral that uh, many black cities get into, including Detroit and Jackson, Mississippi, where uh, white people flee and then middle class blacks flee Uh Non-blacks don't want to live there. Uh, blacks get out if they have the resources to do so, and so you're you're left with a community filled with the the dregs of society, and it's hard to keep infrastructure and civilization operating when you've got a community that's filled with the the dregs of society. Any thoughts?
10: Yeah, I wouldn't use a pejorative like dregs of society, like, but if if you take the um, you know, the IQ angle or your propensity towards uh, your violence or just different uh, cultural norms, you don't have to use a pejorative. Uh, you like, so where I live as majority African-American, uh, but it's integrated and uh, you know, has good infrastructure. And you're know, like Detroit, which is majority black has very bad infrastructure. So if you're talking, uh, you know, just thinking like, you know, the great migration of African-Americans to the North, um there's increased crime rates, there's lower quality of education, and then already a few decades after that you have the deterioration of infrastructure. So uh you know that's usually the final straw, like in Flint, where where just the upkeep, the the pipes and the various infrastructure hasn't been upkept, the competence level of the people living there. So Lipton Matthews, uh, the you know the conservative, uh, pretty smart man from uh, Jamaica who interviewed a whole bunch of people, works for the Von Mises Institute. I had him on my channel and we were talking like in Detroit, they're trying to fulfill the construction unions with Detroiters and all the contracts like they require for the big projects, you have to have over 50% Detroit labor and all of the big companies have invested countless money into you're know, basically training Detroiters, mostly blacks, uh, to fulfill the construction trades, and it's largely failed. And you know, so Lipton Matthews, who's a, you know international expert, was mentioning about uh, Africa, and so like the skilled trades in Africa are usually not done by Africans; they're done by Chinese. Even in Jamaica, he said that the Jamaicans themselves—that one Chinese man could do the work of five Jamaicans. Um, so you could have the infrastructure upkept with some level of multiculturalism you could have a black run society where blacks have the power and the wealth um but you know generally uh blacks don't have the skill level or training to uh maintain the infrastructure you need a successful multicultural area so across america uh you know it's basically become uh, you know, th- there is no longer whites, there is no longer successful forms of integration and there's no one to uh, maintain the infrastructure and the deterioration you know, uh, uh, rapidly spirals.
0: Right, and I don't see why it has to be so threatening to simply point out that different people have different gifts. I am not an engineer but by temperament. right, I would not do well in any kind of position where I was responsible for the Safety of aircraft, or I was responsible for checking on the integrity of, you know, a bridge. All right, so I am not skilled in these ways. I'm happy to let other people do that work. You know, I'll do things that I'm good at, and so, so too with with people. I would not, generally speaking, you know, be be interested in watching uh, tackle football games composed of all Orthodox Jews. Uh, that just wouldn't, wouldn't strike me, or even just all Jewish uh, tackle football games would not be compelling to me, all right? Uh, on the other hand, I mean, Jews tend to make pretty good accountants and, and dentists and lawyers and uh, academics, and of course, rabbis. So if I, if I point out that uh, Jews t- don't tend to dominate the NFL or the NBA, right? that's not a slam on Jews. So I think in, in daily life, people are much more comfortable with this idea that uh, different peoples have different gifts. And it's, I don't feel bad that I don't have any of the skills of an engineer, right? I am not a particularly detail oriented person, right? I'm kind of more of a a big picture person. And so I I would think if we can accept our, our flaws and accept that, other people are strong in areas where we are weak, that we don't get along a lot better and more efficiently and more effectively. Any thoughts, David?
10: Yeah, well I'm I'm an anti racist, so but but like from the you know certain leftist attitude, I'm just as much a racist as God forbid you know, the worst racist. And like you know, I would implore you not to use the language dreck. And if you if you mention, okay, a higher propensity towards crime or even violence as a group strategy, um, you'll know, possibly uh, if you wanted to put it into group IQ differences, uh, but you're know, just factual levels that uh, majority black areas have trouble, you know, like me in Detroit, I know this I tried for years like working in various uh, groups filling the construction trades, and maintaining the infrastructure. So there's a trend across all your know, large swaths of America, where you had the great migration and white flight, and now you have majority black areas. That have higher crime rates and um an inability to uh, fulfill to fill the construction trades and maintain the infrastructure uh, but I, I I would still say like uh, I, I don't view those people negatively, but uh, you know the understanding that the people that they're not going to be able to uh uh you know maintain the culture in the same way that uh, you might like like to see it
0: right so what uh, what what brought me back to honestly wanting to have you back on the show so so frequently is that uh, you you really wrestled with some very powerful things and so you you concluded you know some painful things about yourself and about life and that's interesting when people are willing to to wrestle with that level of honesty obviously i'm a I'm a fifty-six year old man. I've never been after sustain a romantic relationship longer than than a year. I've never earned more than hundred thousand dollars in, in a year. All sorts of ordinary parts of, of life you know, I have not done very well at. And so I think this this recognition of of reality, painful reality, of you know, flaws in ourselves, this is kind of the, the beginning of a productive approach to life and so you endured the pain and you were willing to talk about realizations that you've had had about yourself and i would wager that you were better off for it what do you say
10: yeah and i I kind of learned that from you because i I was looking you know you being very open about your conversion to judaism talking with all sorts of counter-semites uh taking you know, the brunt of uh your know, jews who are skeptical including me who was skeptical of you um and you know still standing up there and doing it and uh you know so that gave me kind of uh, you're know, just to see that it was possible and uh that i you know, did it myself to stand up to uh you know, some of the self-analysis and uh you know kind of the soul searching that uh, obviously i'm not a convert i'm a half Jew uh, but uh, you know that you publicly put your path out there, that it made me re-examine, uh, um, you know my path, and uh, you know we have different conclusions. But I guess what uh, you know the the main commonality between us is our love of Orthodox Judaism.
0: Yeah, and uh, our love of books <laughs> and our love of knowledge, <laughs> our love of love of uh, learning. So uh, on on these lines. I I was just thinking about it's, it's incredibly freeing to uh, put yourself in the shoes of other people. And so I I did, I did a series of blog posts a few years ago where I tried to imagine, you know, how would someone born Jewish look at me? And if I were born Jewish, and then I saw, you know, this clown look forward, sometimes saying critical things about Jews or having counter-Semites on his show, I would be very happy about that. I would probably take offense. And so if if I were born black, I would try to think about all those ways that blacks were superior to every other group. I would primarily focus on black high achievement in culture and in rhetoric and in spirituality and in singing and in, in sports and and comedy, I would focus on the things where my group is superior. And if I were, uh, bo- I don't know, born is there a Muslim, you didn't add sexual prowess in that. Yeah, that's because it's so uh, so explosive. <laughs> but you don't think
10: that that I mean to say that relatively that that's and especially American culture that uh, you know, that's somewhat one of their greatest achievements.
0: I, I'm. I'm not ready to go there. I mean, I'm glad that you are, but I, I'm not. Uh, I'm not ready to to go there. But, but yeah, definitely. I mean, the the amount of sex and the, the amount of partners and the amount of you know parties that the black people tend to go to, you know, outstrips that of, of whites and and Asians. Like Asians tend to be much more sexually conservative and socially conservative than whites. Whites tend to be more sexually and socially conservative than than blacks. So. You know, some people are more outgoing. Blacks tend to be more gregarious than whites. Whites tend to be more gregarious than Asians. And that's not a slam or criticism on any group there.
10: Yeah, I I was thinking that, uh, you know, it could be I learned more from my African-American roommate than anybody else. And I I didn't necessarily learn deep wisdom. You know, he wasn't a reader. You know, like he really only had a great school education, you know, like even his rhyme book was he couldn't even write a sentence or, or spell words, uh, but but he was smart, he was a good chess player, and he showed me things I would have never known, and a lot of it about kind of suffering in the negative side of, of human nature, but he was also a pretty loyal person, like I, I never had a fight with him, even though he was a pretty violent person, he never once attacked me, even though we lived together. And and he was pretty loyal to me. Like he he even uh, he was friend was uh, friendly to me. Like he made every effort to uh you know God God forbid try to get me laid, even though like I never wanted to, um or, or but uh you know just things I would have never known about the world had he not uh, had he not shown me. And and he made an effort, like he wanted to teach me. He had things to teach me, and he, and he did. And uh, you know not like uh, you know the stuff you taught me. Or the rabbis taught me or learned in uh uh university, but you know, you know someone who spent time in prison uh was in the streets uh, you know, had somewhat of a success in in the rapper career kind of kind of like pornography that you wouldn't believe this stuff existed unless you saw it you know you had you had to have seen it with your own eyes uh you know you just to really believe that this stuff existed
0: yeah i mean let's let's talk about how how black people have. Uh, enhanced and uh, enriched our life uh, w- one thing that I've consistently appreciated and learned from black people is how spontaneous they are I mean how real they are I mean how funny and I mean they will come out with 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 compliments and with observations that are just so honest and just so funny and just uh, just bring joy joy to your to your life I mean I just feel like a, you know, an uptight, you know, stick in the mud uh, compared to many of the the blacks that I've had in my life who would just, you know, spontaneously come out with these observations that were, you know, frequently absolutely dead on. But as a white man, I, I would not feel comfortable saying. So, have you experienced the the joys of black spontaneity?
10: Yeah, I mean, and. You know, to some extent, okay, we're conspiracy theorists. And we'll talk about, uh, you know, conspiracies about the government and how things work. Uh, But, you know, within popular African-American culture, conspiracy theorists is basically the norm. And it's not even, like, surprising that even, like, liberals, even, uh, you know, people that, like, the ADL who police uh, uh, speech, don't find it that surprising that uh, African Americans fall into uh, conspiracy and and just saying very social people. Even think like uh, um, you know, a sl- slang man, uh, you know, my uh, you know, his rap name. Uh, he introduced me to probably like fifty millionaires, uh, like literally, like he he he. Uh, you know, went to clubs every night, like he like he had the activity, like he was out every night, and he could tell that you know he was meeting rich people but he didn't understand he knew he didn't understand what people did to make their money he could tell people were rich or had money but he didn't really understand uh you know what it is that people do or the business world. Really. he probably uh did, didn't care uh, but he trusted me and introduced me to them and uh you know like relatively i probably met more prominent people in new york through him than uh, through any of my jewish contacts and even i met i met hundreds of jews through him that uh, you know, like you, you know, he understood something about Judaism and uh, various things, and just like, yeah, people want to have fun. Cause like, I'm an anti-fun kind of person, and uh, you know, so it's like, no, like, like if you just think you want to have fun, but that's bad for you. Really, what you should be doing is working on yourself and working harder and spending your free time studying. And so, like, like that, you know, like, that, uh, you know, like uh, relaxation. And uh and, and pleasure and, and even uh you know sexual stuff that uh uh you know, like God forbid to, you know think like okay, sexual aggression or levels of rape, but but saying like factually there's a lot of women who are highly promiscuous and, and you you it's almost uh unbelievable what goes on, or even the level of uh of drug use and uh and what happens on the street, even the conditions that African Americans live under, you know, just to meet like uh you know, people's friends to go to houses, the reality of uh, prostitution, government aid, uh, aid, even, you know, the factual uh, that ghettos that, uh, you know, you think of Jewish ghettos historically, but in America, uh, you know, the really only the ghettos that exist are black ghettos. And, you know, just to see those and go in them. And also people are people like, uh, you know, blacks might have a more propensity towards violence, uh, but the reality is I never suffered violence. and most people you could speak to and understand and share their pain and uh, want to express their pain. And and like you said, different people have different talents and uh, you know, so black blacks kind of a uh, control culture and, you know, Jews have our role in, in management that I was able to fall into even just being an Orthodox Jew. It made sense to people when like he introduced me, you know, he was, he had signed some deals and uh, it made sense to him, like, that he had this Orthodox Jewish guy, like he was, you know, making it in the business. And it made sense to him that he was introducing, you know, like, uh, you know, people from tough backgrounds or had been in prison to an Orthodox Jew.
0: Yeah, so there's less of a sense that you, you're you trying to figure out what the other person is thinking when you're hanging out with, with Black people. You, I, I get much more of a sense that uh, they're telling me exactly what they're thinking. And and coming out of a much more controlled environment that's refreshing. And then yeah, the the social aspect of uh, hanging out with with blacks, uh, they just seem so much more social, uh, so much more gregarious, uh, so much more outgoing, and they don't seem to suffer from uh, depression nearly as much as whites and Asians. So they seem to have just an inordinate amount of confidence so I've had a lot of self-doubt, crippling levels of self-doubt, uh, crippling levels of introspection, uh, gloominess, you know, low, low-grade depression throughout my life. And you've you struggled with some of those same things. But uh, one thing that strikes me about black people is how much confidence they they frequently have. I mean, they just launch themselves into life with with tremendous confidence. Is that is that a trait that you've noticed too?
10: Oh, definitely. And you know, like I'm generally a pessimist, but uh, I would say majority of African Americans I know are, are somewhat optimistic. And uh, you have Abdul Al-Sayed, the Soros-funded uh, Muslim who almost uh, won the governor's race. Uh, you know that was headed the department of uh, you know, medicine or something in uh, health in uh, Detroit. Uh, that was one of his stump speech uh, stories about you know this young African American kid who's a uh, you are know, from a broken family, uh, you know, parents in and out of prison and has no money, has no health care. has no education, has no, uh, you know, leg- the legitimate, uh, you know, thing to look forward to in his future is just like beaming of optimism about uh, the good things he thinks that are going to be coming to him. And, uh, you know, like generally, um, I was always pessimistic, you know, even, to meeting people like, oh man, they're not going to like me and uh you know so that you know, that aspect of optimism and and it could be related to uh you know classical planning and intelligence that uh, like okay i'm an, i'm a very smart person i think long term everything is planned out and thinking consequences of action as opposed to living in the moment and uh you know so if you think generally at least as the stereotype that good and bad are uh, related African Americans live in the moment and that means that they might have a bigger propensity for violence uh because they're you know less of long-term planning but also that they're more fun and uh and spontaneous and optimistic
0: yeah and uh let, let me read a little bit more from the article we were discussing yesterday from the Jewish telegraphic agency JTA The topic, are too many Germans converting to Judaism? The debate is roiling Germany's Jewish community. And so a prominent cantor, uh, Hazan, in a Reform synagogue, penned a column critical of the massive numbers of conversions to Judaism in Germany. And she wrote a column called why the increasing number of converts is a problem for Judaism. She charged that too many people in Germany convert for the wrong reasons, such as to atone for their family's Nazi past or to identify with the victims rather than the perpetrators. And she criticized that converts fill numerous Jewish leadership roles in Germany. And I just want to focus on that last bit that Uh, putting yourself forward for a leadership position is not an unalloyed, you know, good thing. Like some people live too much in the cave, right? Some people, you know, hold back on their talents and their gifts. Some people don't step up enough. But uh, many people would be better off not, you know, reaching for a leadership position. And it would make sense why a tribe that may not be best served by having converts take uh, leadership positions. So wh- what do you think about the whole whole idea? Of course, there are halakhic considerations. So, you know, converts obviously should not serve on a Beit Din converting people. But what do you think about this issue of a newcomer to any group, n- not just Jews, uh, immediately trying to seize a, a leadership position? To me, that seems frequently ill-advised. Any thoughts on that, David?
10: Well, I mean, like, I mean, we went over my debate with Joseph Cohn and my expression as Jews as management, which I still I could see as a, you know, possibly a stereotype that your know, Jews might hear and be, you know, and want to deny or uh, push back against. Uh, but you know, generally, I, I stick with that stereotype. So if you're converting to Judaism, you're entering management. So like, uh, you presumably. Uh, you're know, like, well, I'm a Jew now, and it's time for me to uh, be in management. And even it's so like, well, no, no, you're going to be you know a priest to nations, not to Jews. Now that you're a Jew, you're going to be management to the to non-Jews, uh, not to fellow Jews. Uh, you know, but uh, you know, say so, no. I mean, realistically, uh, you know, even like Chabad, you know, like we're turning people into leaders. Uh, you know, like that, this uh, self-actualization judaism somewhat a religion of self-actualization and because we're a small uh selective or or, or even delete people in some extent uh that uh, no makes sense that converts would expect to uh, rise into uh, leadership i mean wh- why wouldn't you think that that would be part of becoming jewish the expectation to rise into leadership
0: well one has to consider the effect of what you're doing on, on other people. So if you are new to a stamp club, uh, generally speaking, you don't run for president of the stamp club. If you are a new attorney, you generally speaking, don't you know, try to take a leadership role in, in the legal profession. So uh, generally speaking, when one is new to something, one does not immediately set about trying to run things and to take charge. Now, there are individual exceptions. So if you're you know, incredibly competent and the community has a need, then obviously you should step up. So my point is take leadership positions where that is to the benefit of the community, but otherwise keep your ego in, in chat and learn to assimilate to the ways of the community and you know, look for perhaps more humble ways of contributing before stepping up to take charge of others. Anything you want to rejoin to?
10: Yeah, what I'm saying, there's a natural connection between Judaism and management and leadership. And so you're saying, oh, I'm a Jew now. I'm You're like, I'm meant for leadership just by the fact that I'm Jewish. And yeah, I don't know if converts are, are like, you know, the next day, like, okay, like I converted. Now I want to be in charge. Presumably, you know, the converts are part of the congregation. And, you know, the Gomorrah and Yovamos, the Tospos, uh, you know, it says converts you know, the converts take Judaism on. more seriously. And even, you know, my experience, like the uh, downtown synagogue, uh, Chabad places, that uh, converts take Judaism more seriously uh, most of the time. And so if you're in a synagogue that has very weak membership, very weak Jewish affiliation, and you're a new convert, you're probably one of the people that are there more regularly and taking things more ser- seriously. And that after a few years that you would rise to uh like be on the board of directors or uh, a leadership position is probably sociologically natural. I mean certainly at the downtown synagogue, uh you know, like almost half of the board of directors are, you know, like converts and in, in the in the Jews who are on the board of directors are largely the absentee, like the people who show up to Friday services and all the events are dominated by converts. And a lot of the Jews on the board of directors, uh, they never show up. They're just on the board of directors. Well, like, I'm actually Jewish. Uh, So I I think there's many reasons. It's not like a stamp club or a normal club that there's proclivity that if you're going to become Jewish, that you have a proclivity towards leadership and that uh, the likelihood especially in reform or, or more secular forms of Jewishness, uh, that converts probably show up more often, take it more seriously, and therefore naturally, uh, not um, necessarily know, through their own ambition, uh, but but just beca- you know through a sheer showing up, you know, like in some extent, like these reform places, like just if you just keep on showing up, you're eventually going to be on the board of directors because so few people show up. And, uh, I mean, you don't see it like that even in L.A., like the the secular institutes that uh you know like it's dominated by converts who just always show up and you know not necessarily because they're overly ambitious or trying to assert powership but just by the sheer seriousness with which they take judaism
0: No, i i do see that and so i think you've got some good points there so i want to uh wrap it up there for tonight david bring you bring you back uh, another night uh so thanks for coming on the show this evening any final words for tonight
10: yeah, I, I mentioned that book. Uh, you know, if it, if it was interesting, like she's got some videos. This uh, by any a, a Goldberg by any other name, which is uh, the myth. Even my own uh, ancestors, the common myth that uh, um, Jews when we got to Ellis Island, that the U.S. immigration staff changed their names. Like we gave them the Jewish name, and they wrote down an Anglo name. And my own mother, uh, your our ancestors have that. Uh, legend. And this woman uh, did uh, extreme amounts of research. She went to the immigration offices and she found there was never such a U.S. policy. Uh, it's unlikely there wasn't even such a uh, office at Ellis Island that did such a thing and that it was Jews out of our own volition that purposely changed their name. And a lot of us changed our name, like in our family, uh, my mom looked into it. We changed our name even before we got to America in anticipation, and then afterwards, like of the roll call of uh, legal name changes, that like in New York City, like uh, I mean, this woman did the research. If you look into it, that like almost fifty percent of name changes uh, were done uh, by by Jews. So I thought that was you know we're talking like Ang- Anglo of filia of between Jews and you know thing. Is it really likely that Anglo Americans? told Jews, like, you're going to take an Anglo name against your own will. And so it's interesting, uh, you know, if you you thought it'd be interesting, to discuss the two aspects of uh, why did Jews go to such great extent? I mean, the obvious reason, because it was helped for our success and assimilation to, uh, you know, take Anglo names. But why did we lie to our ancestors and give them this false story that, uh, you know, that uh, on Ellis Island, they changed their names? I don't know if you ever heard of this uh your, your legend that you know when we got to ellis island that you know the immigration officials uh, checked her name but if that's interesting to you i thought that was pretty interesting
0: okay thanks David. i'll uh, talk to you another evening so right, thanks for take it. care all right let's uh this is sam hyde calling out hassan piker the after his out fight the heavyweight
4: division.
11: oh you know it, lad you know that hassan piker i'm coming to kill you in los angeles at your house or in the ring. No, in real life, I'm going to stalk him and become obsessed with him and wear his makeup and his dresses and use his skin as a coat like the ancient Irish did.
12: Well, that's your winner, Sam
11: Hi. Hey,
0: powerful, powerful stuff. Okay. What's going on with the anti-Semitic league?
6: flyers appeared yesterday morning in the oh small no. beach town of Brigantine, New Jersey, residents discovering the flyers with Nazi insignias from a group called the Goyam Defense League. Blaming COVID, abortion, inflation, all sorts of other issues on a list of Jewish officials in the White House, Department of Justice, the CIA, the State Department, and media companies led by Jewish owners or executives. Similar flyers were found earlier this month on Long Island, just last week in Raleigh, North Carolina, and this summer in Palm Beach and other places across the country. This comes as the Anti-Defamation League says they've seen an extraordinary rise in anti-Semitic...
0: This is truly shocking because it's completely unknown among Jews that they ever say anything critical of non-Jews. So, I mean, how dare... Uh, The Goyim Defense League say critical things about Jews.
6: ...attacks in 2021, more than any time in the group's 43-year history. Joining us now is Jonathan Greenblatt, the CEO of the Anti-Defamation League. Jonathan, this is so disturbing. Why do you see this rise in anti-Semitism now?
13: Andrew, this is indeed an incredibly disturbing incident, but unfortunately it's part of this broader pattern.
0: Well, on the bright side, we get to fundraise a lot of money from this because if we frighten Jews that the the Cossacks are coming, we get to make a lot of money, and I get to go on TV, and uh, we get more more you know media appearances. We get more money, we get more influence. We can propagandize that we've got the solution to this virus of hate. Group
13: the Goyim Defense League. We tracked, Oy. as we do more than two hundred and fifty propaganda incidents across the country oh, where they've left flyers, like you showed in that clip, or they have put out signs or stickers specifically targeting the Jewish community. So as you said, this comes on the heels of a record number of anti-Semitic incidents in the country. And this year alone, this group, the G.
0: Okay. Thanks. thanks. There's no no height law in Israel
14: doesn't mean that they're not trying to convince the Gentiles outside of Israel to set up these
12: courts. hmm. Mm hmm. And uh, not to mention, there's Tovia Singer. This it, is Adam Green is and Vincent Derek's, Bruno. one of Derek's favorite rabbis. Is, is
0: this uh, Vincent the gay Hindu?
12: is Tovia Singer. And he's, here I have a clip of him bragging about all of the Christians he's converted to be Noahides.
15: The events that are unfolding before our eyes today are staggering. No one knows the numbers. <laughs> Hundreds of thousands, maybe millions, we don't, just don't know. Of Noah Of people who are coming to the Jewish faith all over the world. It's an amazing thing. And
12: he brings this rabbi on all the time, sucks up to him, doesn't ask him any hard questions, and then lets him just kind of refute and debunk Christianity, but won't, won't like won't even ask him one hard question about Judaism. <laughs> and and Tobias Singer believes that Christianity is idolatry. He does, yeah. Yeah, he does. He believes it's idolatry.
0: And
14: here
12: he is just bragging about...
0: Oh, Carl, let, let's be real. Everybody thinks that religions different from their own are at best weird and most likely, you know, evil, satanic, and idolatrous. So it's not like it's something weird and unusual that uh, Jews think a religion different from their own is uh, idolatrous.
12: About, I mean, it, you called Noahide Laws a conspiracy and said it's only fringe rabbis that believe these things. And here's your favorite rabbi here promoting Noahide
0: Okay, so Noahide Laws are not promoted by fringe rabbis. Uh, Noahide laws have been a tiny, tiny, minor part of Judaism for thousands of years. Now, how much emphasis you give to Noahide laws, all right, many, many rabbis will go their entire lives without you know ever saying anything about Noahide laws. Noahide laws. Oh, and what are Noahide laws? These are the basic moral principles that uh, certain teachings in Judaism suggest uh, all humanity should abide by, such as don't murder, don't commit incest, don't steal, uh, don't kidnap, set up courts of law, don't go around uh, denying God's existence publicly, and don't be cruel to animals. I mean, really heinous stuff. Wow, don't murder, don't rape, don't commit incest, don't be cruel to animals. My God, no hide laws, just outrageous.
12: In the decapitation thing, we're not making this up. Maimonides says it. Uh, the Talmud says it. Habad's website says it. NoahideLog.org's website says it. We're not making it up. Can You're just covering just up.
14: Jump- what? Can I just jump in in that there's a big deception going on. So Jews and Noahides will tell you that there are no decapitations until the Messianic era. Mm-hmm. the The thing about that is there's a dispute about when you can decapitate, but there's no dispute over when you can punish. So prior to the Messianic era, it is only an option. Decapitation is an option depending on.
0: Oh, my God. They're decapitating people. Okay. I Southern had a lot Dingo. of money, you and I gave
14: him twenty five bucks of it. You know, he's like, "Thanks Southern for the twenty five bucks, though." It's like, "Yeah, well, go get some beanie weenies with it, you fucking old bitch."
0: Well, <laughs> oh, disavow.
11: <laughs> <laughs> well, the, the, and like the thing is, uh, the, the reason I say that I bring this up when I say it plays well into his personality that he's a person who does this sort of thing is because tell me about um, it. Back when Stormer Book Club was a thing, when it first I, when I started, started, like what? I knew it. I told you it was going to be this fucking screenshot. Now, like, play it, play it, play it. All right, locals. You know, whoever was running a local chapter would just recruit. And so, <clears throat> you know, we were working out the bugs in the system and everything and coming up with, you know, different ways to keep things. And the only leak that ever came out of that was because of sudden Dingo. And here's the thing, I didn't even know.
0: And uh, Glenn Medley says Chabad does push Noahide laws and they are the de facto face of Orthodox Judaism. Right. They push it, but it's like 1% at most of their emphasis, right? Chabad rabbis ha- have you know, 50 other things that are more important to them. So to the extent that they're pushing Noahide laws, it means that occasionally they gather with, with politicians and say, hey, you know, the, these universal moral principles, they're, they're a good idea. It's not like Chabad rabbis are devoting their, their days and nights to pushing Noahide laws.
11: Well, he had joined because um until I had that one fateful uh, appearance on his show when i didn't know who he was this was like 2017 or something uh, it was it was you, the same week that are, had. Paulette, yeah. he reached out to me to come
14: on my show firstly secondly i didn't seek out the stormer book club his fucking little recruiter from the city i said i shouldn't name because i don't know i don't know what the guy's doing now like that guy came to me and asked me to join that stupid fucking book club okay i didn't fucking seek out any of their gay shit all right i didn't know much about them at the time i didn't have a bad opinion of them or a good opinion of them until i got there like in these little groups and they're sitting there making they're making people post pictures of either pants or receipts to prove that you got these fucking skinny jeans and shoes and i'm like i'm not doing that like i'm just not i'm not gonna do it i'm not gonna hot topic to get these fucking pants fuck you and i left and they've never provided a single fucking what what do you call a single fucking um smidgen of
0: evidence Yeah, this is uh, Southern Dingo going off against Asbador of uh, Daily Storm of Fame.
14: It's none, nothing, not a single little iota. Why? Because there is none. They're making some bullshit up, right? They're pulling it right out of their fucking ass. And even if there was a leak of some screenshot somewhere... They never tell you what it's about. They never tell you who got their hands on it. Like, this is, it's just like a phantom fucking story with no details that they just want you to believe because, hey, herder, he's a fad. Asmador said so. Like, why don't you fucking put something on the table? Show me a screenshot. Show me who got it. Show me a finger pointing at me other than your old wrinkly one. You dumb meth mover. You fucking drug dealing piece of shit. Asmodor, you're, I'm gonna fucking find you, Asmodor. I'm gonna beat your old ass. And you can fucking send this to the sheriff's department, bitch. I'm it for you, Asmodor. I have a clean criminal record. You got me? They'll put me
9: in jail for a weekend for beating your ass. That's <laughs> over for you, Asmodor! Well, actually, (laughs) don't you get, like, 20 years if you beat up?
15: I'm
14: just just, just kidding. I'm just actually kidding. But, uh, yeah, please do send in that, though. I think that would be hilarious. He'll play that on the show.
0: Wow, Southern Dingo just setting the record straight. Did we go to the moon? Yeah, it's amazing that I even have to ask that question
15: because it was always assumed, of course, I mean... In my generation, we grew up with the moon landings. I, I remember watching I Dream a Genie and Major Nelson. All the boys wanted to be an astronaut and also find a genie like Barbara Eden. But it was, it was a big thing, it was huge. And uh, thousands, hundreds of thousands of people were employed by NASA or the contractors. It, it was a huge deal back in the 60s and early 70s. It started out as a space race with the Soviets. And like everything, there was a lot of propaganda. And we wanted to be the first to the moon. And the first man orbit of the moon happened in 1968. It was Apollo 8, December 21st. And they went around the moon. They saw the dark side of the moon, and they they landed. And they made a joke about the moon not being made out of green cheese, but American cheese. Get it? Get it? And they had a splashdown. And it really started the frenzy. And then, of course, the big one was Apollo 11. That's where we landed on the moon. And Neil Armstrong and all of the rest, Buzz Aldrin, walked on the moon. And it was one of the highlights of human history. It really... It kind of, in our souls of our people, it just resonated of the greatness that man can do, not just physical, right, being physically strong, but using our minds to reach the moon. Because just think, for hundreds of thousands of years that humans have existed, they've looked at the moon. It's, it's a huge part of the mythos and religion and, and everything. And to actually have a man get on the moon, it was stunning in its accomplishment. It didn't have anything to do necessarily with technological advancements, although we did have a lot of technological advances. And did it help us militarily? Not a lot, it gave us some prestige, you know, boasting points over the Soviets, but mostly it just represented something greater, a, a hope for mankind. And we saw that even then, that's where we had a lot of uh, like Star Trek was it very common, the whole science fiction, where we would go to the moon, then to the planets and so forth. But you know, the last time we walked on the moon was December 11th, 1972. And I say we, I mean Americans. And it, so it's been a lot of years, over 50 years now, and we're trying to go back. There's a project called Artemis, and the rocket, it had to be canceled again because of a fuel problem. It's been way over budget. It's been a boondoggle. And there's a lot of reasons for that I'm not going to go into. But since we haven't been back to the moon in so long, there's a lot of people really have this idea that it was all fake. It was a conspiracy, like Stanley Kubrick. He did it in, in the studio and so forth, and they have all these things that, oh, this is proof. Like, look at the American flag. There's no air on the moon, but it's, you, know, you can see the American flag uh, erect. There. It looks like it's waving. And, yeah, I'm not going to debunk each of those things, and I'll, I'll go over a few of those. But the main concept is how do we know what's true in general? Not just the moon landing in general. Like, did the Civil War happen? Does uh, Japan, is Japan a real place? Uh, how do I know Japan's a real place? Uh, like, I haven't, maps, throughout my life, I've seen maps of Japan. I've never been to Japan, though. And the maps, they could all be fake. They could just put Japan on there to fool me. And then there's uh, i've seen videos of people in japan and Jap- japanese culture but i guess that could have all been done in the studio in, in hollywood it, it could it just could be a studio production and then you can say well uh, my daughter my daughter actually visited japan and she told me about it well you know the sites and the people but maybe she's not telling the truth maybe they whoever they are the sinister people threaten her or threaten to kill me if she revealed the secret that doesn't really exist see you can In any subject, you can make a tale of how it's fake. It's just an elaborate production. And eventually, you get to the point you can't really believe anything, and I don't know how you live your life. Now, that's not to say conspiracies don't exist or lies in history don't exist. Believe me, they do. But you have to think somewhat critically, and it kind of disturbs me. A lot of our people no longer believe that. It's like we don't think that was possible. And it it disturbs me for a couple of reasons. I, I think the first reason is I think it's almost a technique to help lose the credibility of people. And what I mean by that, if you don't believe in the moon landing or even recently that the Earth, a lot of people now literally believe the Earth is flat. That started as a tongue in cheek joke, you know, the Flat Earth Society. But now some people literally believe it. They're not they're not joking. It's not part of it, you know, having fun. And the problem is that if you believe in all sorts of obvious nonsense, then your other positions can easily be ridiculed. And I think some of this has been planned in order to uh, make people not credible so if people do have a question about some historical event or scientific thing but then they think the earth is flat all of a sudden their whole they're they're just not a credible person and oh well you're nuts you're just like one of those flat earthers or don't think we went to the moon so your opinion about something that could be credible is all of a sudden not valid anymore so i think there's a little of that going on i i I really do and also i I just find it really uh it's almost like defamatory against our people our people are so brave and and, uh, the ingenuity of all the earth right our americans our people did this and It's amazing it really stunned the world and i think we should take pride in that after all these years no one's done it since and this was before fancy computers they were using
0: okay looking at the chat alexander says if you accept that hashem is the one true god but you don't want the rest of the world to convert to judaism well what is the rest of the world supposed to do religiously right if you believe our religion is true our god is true but we don't want you worshipping the one true God, even though he created you too, right? that, yeah, that doesn't actually make uh, make much sense.
8: I think, well, we could just riot and burn down the city. So, you know, like they they all believe that they hold the Trump card when all is said and done. I think mm-hmm. that that's something they all inherently believe.
11: I agree. Uh, There's definitely a big strain of triumphalism on the modern left. Uh, Wokeism brings it about in a messianic context, but it's even there otherwise. Uh, Now, looking at the future of the American right, which may more accurately be referred to as the American non-left, just a very (laughs) broad coalition of people who dislike what the left has become, what will the future of it be? Because I don't think that the American non-left is going to get a majority uh, in the national popular vote, whether you're talking about congressional or presidential elections. I think that the non-left at the the national level is going to be a smaller and smaller share of the population. I think that people on the non-left, particularly those who are members of various groups that could be described is uh unambiguously on the right i think a lot of them are going to sooner or later see the futility of trying to quote unquote take america back uh, or quote unquote make america great again so what do you think the right in, or the non-left in the u.s will be like say in 20 years time halsey then paul
8: i think that if if we want to see what the right and left will look like in
0: okay the chat says what really changes whether or not you believe in the moon landing or the shape of the world? Is that going to affect your math scores, your mental health, or your work performance? Well, you will be dismissed as a kook by most normal people. And the only kind of people who won't have a problem with you will be dysfunctional losers. So you really don't want to do things to segregate yourself away from high-achieving people, decent people, law-abiding people, successful people, And you really don't want to do things to segregate yourself in with the dysfunctional losers. So the worst thing about having an addiction, whether it's alcohol or under-earning or debting or using porn or being a sex addict or a love addict or marijuana addict, is that decent people will distance themselves from you. And so the most important thing you can have in your life are connections with good people. So yeah, taking on goofy fringe beliefs such as we never really landed on the moon you're going to isolate yourself from decent people and you're going to increasingly connect yourself with dysfunctional losers which will destroy your life
8: 20 years time it's impossible to tell because i don't know what they'll look like in five years time i don't know what they'll look like in two years time the country is completely financially bankrupt at this point we don't have any more money left Every dollar they print is just going to raise inflation, mm-hmm. and the fed has and the fed's usually pretty honest about this kind of stuff they don 't see an end in sight, even with the high interest rates, even with everything they they are basically telling us we 're screwed we 're at a point where Europe is seeing eighty to one hundred and twenty percent increases in their electricity costs oh. in a month alone they're saying it'll be somewhere between six and seven hundred percent by winter, and that 's at the beginning of winter, and we 're not far behind because you know why the only way we stop Europe from going into the next potato famine is by sending our gas in, and, and natural gas that we don 't have over there. So I'm just saying that that the idea that that we are going to be able to predict what will be on the right and left in 10, 20 years, God knows if if the country will even exist or if it'll just be completely Mad Max. Paul? Yeah, I agree with
5: what Halsey is saying, obviously, but uh, I, I think what even complicates the situation more is there's no way of dumping these crazy woke leftist governments that are bankrupting their countries because they have majority votes on their side. Uh, 100 a lot about German uh, affairs. And uh, as, as, as much as the left has screwed up the country, imposed the most absurd forms of wokeism and anti-nationalism and anti-fascism on these countries, the left is enormously popular. Uh, Robert Habeck, who was the Wirtschaftsminister, the economic, he's, he's horrible, but he's one of the most popular people in Germany. So is Birbach, the uh, the, uh, the minister, the foreign minister, who said this, uh, this woke woman, Uh, She looks like a teenager. She's very popular. Uh, Schultz is very popular in the country. No matter how bad the conditions are, no matter how badly they screw up, the left continues to gain. Um, Italy may be an exception, you know, a happy exception to this rule, mm-hmm. but uh, this seems to be true of most of these European countries, uh, and I don't, I'm not even all that optimistic because the something national got uh, 80 or 90 seats in the French assembly. Uh, they're still vastly outnumbered by the left and the left center. Um, and uh, in the United States, you know, it, it is remarkable to me, or, or maybe appalling that the Democratic Party is doing as well as it is, considering that it's screwed up everything in the country. Um, uh, and of course, you know, I think the Republican Party is inept. Um, it does not do the things that Halsey wisely suggested it should be doing. Nonetheless, um, no matter what the Republicans would do, I think close to 50% of the population would vote with them for, uh, with the Democrats for ideological reasons, uh, no matter how badly the Democrats grew up. So, uh, this, I think simply complicates the issue. There's no way, you know, of being able to turn around 20 or 30% of the population by showing
11: how disastrously, you know, the left has performed in office. <clears throat> I think that there will, there still will be a U.S. in 20 years. I doubt it in a hundred years, but I think there will still be. a me, you know,
13: common criminal, uh, which is crazy. To like, but yeah, yeah, I'll, I'll give you that, that there is a tradition within quote-unquote Jews in the Cohen Babylonian Benjamin. Talmud that Jesus is, like, burning and shit, and is, uh, he was he was conceived by a Roman guard named Pantera. Mm-hmm. That's why uh, Christians going to Pantera concerts I always found very funny, um, you know. Well, I think this
12: is a ruse and that they actually do – there's a secret in Judaism that's going to re- be revealed at the end of time that Jesus actually – they're going to acknowledge, oh, he was our Messiah, and and he was just fulfilling his divine role because they believe in two messiahs but I, I just wanted to share this with you real quick there's so many examples of this of rabbis top rabbis saying the same thing about jesus so here's your old uh, buddy here uh dennis prager who you actually did a few videos for and and now but they you're, took down and they, they took down and now you're on here with me but listen to what he has to say about christianity here
8: word and i i don't take that both the greatest jewish thinker uh, many think that's what i believe and as my motto Sorry. Christians often say, you know, I think you're the most prayed for man in America. And I think, I think it's true, because of the many wonderful Christians who pray that I, that I receive Christ. And I, I don't take that, by the way, I just want to make it clear. I'm not only not offended, I'm actually touched by it. These people really do love me, and I love them. Christians true to their faith are doing God's work. That's what I believe. And as Maimonides, who was no fan of Christianity or Islam, because he was persecuted by both, the greatest Jewish thinker, uh, many think, uh, he said it's Christians uh, who brought the world to the Torah more than Jews did. And and I never forget that that's a fact. The reason people know the word Genesis or Leviticus or Deuteronomy uh, is because of Christians. In fact, I am very I'm very sad about uh, Jews getting as. Uh, uh-
12: so we can stop it there. So he's like a gangster. Wh- he is. Would they? What's more likely the case that all of these stories in the Bible really happened, or that some grabblers made it up for this very reason to convince the Gentiles to worship their God and believe in their holy book?
13: Uh, well, I just see Dennis Prager is just lying to get money. I mean, he told, um, he, I mean, they're not following the tour or anything. I mean, he told, uh, Dave Rubin that he's bisexual and Dave Rubin is currently married to a guy who bangs him in the ass and they just adopted two kids. It's like, these are clowns to me. So I think that I, when I watch that, I almost picture like, like gangster type power moves of like, yo, I fucked your girl before you do you did or something. You know, I don't, I don't see that as like valid theology i see dennis prager as uh somebody who's just trying to get naive christians to give him money because he's you know good with magic like i just i don't take him very seriously it just seems kind of you know he's got a shaved face the Torah says don't shave your face (laughs) he's like told he told dave rubin he's bisexual i'm like what the fuck is this see that's one way i I judge people now too is like how pervert like how towering of perversions are you and and the, the Torah says that uh you know sodomites get fucking stoned and these guys are like oh my god i married a man I'm like, okay, so you're not even Jews. You're just like these weird, pink-tied, shaved-faced gay guys, you know?
12: Uh, I want, I saw your video you had with Sam Tripoli arguing about you, how you were banned from Rockfin, and I'd like to talk about that if Mark from Rockfin would allow yeah, yeah,
13: that. Of if that's okay with Martin from Rockfin, yeah. <laughs> oh, was it Martin?
12: I thought it was.
0: Okay. What else have we got here? Whoops. That's uh. Let me, Let me get my act together. Pull up uh, Pull up another video. But uh, meanwhile, let's listen to Hal Brands and Michael Beckley on China.
9: Is basically wrong. Uh, that, that China should be viewed more as a risen or perhaps as a peaking power than as a rising power because there's simply not much reason to expect the uh, really tremendous economic growth of the three decades after the beginning of the reform and opening period in 1978, 1979 to continue. And in fact, it, it has already slowed considerably from where it was uh, on the eve of the global financial crisis in 2007-2008. In and there are a variety of reasons why China is going to find it very difficult to achieve the level of growth that the Communist Party wants to achieve in the coming years. Everything from a demographic problem.
0: Okay, lies on the lies right. Lies
16: on the right. Gavin, Gavin McInnes has hoaxed his audience. And I want to read a quote from Owen Benjamin who has his own has his own thing going on here but we're gonna read this quote because I think this was really good I think this was really emblematic of what this whole thing is about so we're gonna read this quote it's in this Facebook post he makes he says I went to the right wing politically because I thought the left were grifting immoral liars boy was I wrong well that's hard to admit it's hard to admit that when you've invested years into a political movement like the right wing generally that you're going to admit you're wrong and so you know whether, whether Owen is saying that genuinely, or because he's, he's done a lot of stuff himself, that doesn't matter. The sentiment is correct. The sentiment is that people go over to the right because they believed that the left was flawed, hypocritical, immoral, deceptive, and in their outrage they said, well, I'm going to go over to the right because the right is the opposite of those things, the right is different. But let's listen to Gavin in his own defense, his own explanation of what he did positive, like, why did he choose to pretend to be arrested by the FBI on his show? The word that I heard is he did it for attention, which is, like, honest, right, for somebody who's just lied and deceived people, and in the Facebook messages, the screen caps Owen showed, he said he's never going to come out with the truth, he's never going to tell the truth regarding the situation, I don't know how he thought he was going to get away with it, I don't even, are you allowed to fake yourself being arrested by the, I know you're not allowed to impersonate the FBI, he was kind of doing an impersonation through implication, an implicit impersonation. So I don't know what the legal status of it is, but how do you get away with something? Apparently he thought he was gonna get away with it. Owen revealed him for the liar that he is, and he said he did it for attention, which is just true. I mean, we should take him at his word there. He did it for attention. And isn't that what all of these commentators are doing? They're competing in an economy of attention. They're looking for a certain degree of attention. And everybody's got different skills. Everyone has different abilities. You know, some people get attention by dancing with a various amount of clothes on. Some people get attention through saying controversial things. Some people get attention by affirming the beliefs of their audience. But these are all attempts at getting attention. And attention has a kind of value in itself insofar as as attention feels good. It feels good to get attention. Now, some people are introverts. They don't like attention. They don't want to get attention. But a lot of people derive pleasure from getting attention. So these people are not only benefiting from the feeling of getting attention, they're also benefiting from money. The claim that they'll make is that they could make more money in another field, in another path of life. But the truth is they probably wouldn't get as much attention. So it's like while they're getting the attention, they're also getting the money. It's self-interest. It's self-interest. It's not about speaking the truth. It's not about anything virtuous. It's not about anything moral. It's about doing right by themselves. And we see this a lot. And so, you know, a lot of people do mixed martial arts. When you do mixed martial arts, you get beat up, right? It hurts. It's painful. It's tough but people willingly do it. They don't do it. When you see a guy like uh, the Irishman, I'm not talking about the candy man here. I'm talking about, um, you, know the, you know the one, Conor McGregor. So when Conor McGregor does, does uh, martial arts, was he doing it out of a moral altruism? Or was he doing it for himself? What people lie about all the time is this idea that if you've made sacrifices, that you are a moral person or you're an altruistic person. Making sacrifices is not an indication that you're moral or you're altruistic. But it's, it's an indication that you've made some kind of cost-benefit analysis, and you've said that the sacrifice is worth it, that the juice is worth the squeeze. And so you're going to put in the time and the effort, and you're going to get canceled, and you're going to whatever cross you have to bear, but you're not doing it for the sake of other people. You're not doing it for the truth. You're doing it for yourself. That's something that a lot of people fail to understand in this political arena, is that people who talk about politics and who make enemies as is, like, necessary, like, it's, it's impossible not to talk about politics because it's polarized. It's impossible not to talk about politics without making enemies. And so people say, well, I've made these enemies. I've suffered these consequences. I'm such a holy person. You should support me and you should give me money. And you should give me attention. And you should give me respect. I don't have respect for these people. I don't have respect for this movement. I don't have respect for these circles and spheres. And there are a lot of people who are kind of begrudgingly a part of it. And the philosophy is, well, you know, maybe this guy turned out bad. Does anyone remember Eliot Klein? just pretended to be on deployment. He pretended that he was deployed to Iraq. And, you know, without, like, even talking about stolen valor or something, it's just incredible. People can just say, yeah, I was deployed to Iraq. I was arrested by the FBI. People just make things up for clout, for attention, for respect, for people to look up to them. And I understand the psychology because I feel that. I feel that urge. I feel the urge to the desire for all those same things like this is this is part of our human survival strategy if we get enough money clout attention respect there's a uh, historically there's a reproductive fitness payoff so we're instinctually built to be egotistical or at least that's part of the spectrum of human personality obviously some people are and some people are codependent and you know there's people all throughout the spectrum and you can put a label on it or you can go to the myers-briggs or however you want to view it that's a lot of people experience these feelings. A lot of people have these fantasies and delusions of grandeur. I received a message from someone who is well-meaning. I don't mean to rag on this person, but I do mean to rag on the sentiment that they expressed, which is that, you know, the system won't last forever and someday it'll collapse and then we'll and then we'll take charge and then we'll be in power. That is one of these fantasies that people engage in. And this question is who is this we who's gonna take power? Because it's it's right now it's not gonna be you and me. If I drop dead tomorrow, there is no we here. There is no institution. I went out and Oh, my God,
0: we're lost, guys. Kent Brown's not going to take power.
16: And I tried to build that. I went on a road trip, and I said, I'm going to meet people in real life. I'm going to have a you know, heart-to-heart connection with people. We're going to build this social capital. We're going to build this trust. And out of that, I'm going to find people who have different skills, different personalities who are able to fill in those gaps because I can't do everything myself, and I need help, and I need to recruit people, and I'm willing to do whatever it takes to do that. And so I did that for you a know, year, year and a half or so, and it wasn't worthless, and I would certainly do parts of it again. And there were ups and downs, and I think, I mean, it's, I mean, in some senses, everything you do, uh, until you reach your goal, my original goal was to, uh, shoot for the stars, right? And so you say in that sense, I failed, but I learned a lot from it, and failure shouldn't be a naughty word, it shouldn't be a dirty word. You have to, because if you failed, uh, you've done something. You know, if you haven't failed, that means you didn't try, and that's, that is much, much worse.
0: Thank you, thank you for everything you've done, good sir, but, uh, what's... What's, where's the bloody link here? I had all lined up. Man, oh man. I am losing it. No, I don't want to listen to Jonathan Greenblatt. Okay, this is what I want to hear. Let, let's get the voice of sanity here. David Cole. Like, right, you're not
17: a denier. <laughs> yeah, right, not a denier.
0: He thinks I'm, I'm fucking with him.
17: He thinks that for some reason somebody's holding something over me and I can't be honest. Dude, I, I can, I'm only being honest with you people. No one is holding anything over me. Okay? I own my house. I have a good job. I don't have any relatives who I can be gotten to through. Uh, I'm fine. I, I, when I talk about the Reinhardt camps, the Oslo the and ghettos, the Einsatzgruppen, and I'm not saying that because someone's got a fucking gun to my head. If you get me alone for a couple of pints, I'm not going to say anything different than I'm saying now. Like, you know, how can you convince somebody uh, of that? Yeah. Uh, non Bosnian, fake war in Ukraine. What do you okay. say? I yeah, it's all paper mache. I don't even why. Do you mean that it's a, sh- it's a put on, you know, that, it, that it's crisis actors? I know people. I mean, I see people on Twitter who think that, who literally think it's just all the show being put on for you guys. Um, well, I, I don't know. You know, I, this is one of those I can't even, I can't even. Lichtbringer, um, I would like to ask one more question if you don't mind. As a Holocaust revisionist, did you have an easier or harder time getting laid in the nineties? I can imagine that many women were keen on you because of your bad boy image. Please share it, your experience with us. Yeah, I had a great time. Yeah, that's an absolutely great time. And that's going to, I'm going to hold that again. We're going to take that, put it in the pocket. I, and again, that is not a pocket. Uh, and I'm going to get back to that in a second. Um, okay, Liffbringer has a second question. Dear Dave, did you have a fleeting acquaintance with German neo-Nazis back in the 90s? I'm aware that you didn't think much of such idiotic figures then and now, but at least I've seen a photo of you with Ernst Sandl and the then right-wing extremist Ewald Orkens. Who uh, later left the Nazi scene after his homosexual coming out? I know from video footage that Lucha was celebrated at personal meetings with German neo-fascists like Axel Reits, uh, etc., etc. Lucha, uh, Lucha grinning like the pathetic worm he is when they complimented him at those denier meetings. Speaking of which, if you've seen the movie Mister Death about Lucha, I think I covered Mister Death a few videos ago regarding your question a It's a good question. Thank you for asking. Two of the, two good questions. Um, <clears throat> one of my times in München. Um, I wanted to meet these guys, all of Zundel's circle, uh, not publicly, not, not to, to do anything with them publicly, but as a journalist, as a, as a guy who was curious, I spent a couple of nights hanging out with Zundel's clique in Munich. And I w I was fascinating. You had Ewald Galton's who was clearly gay and he invited me to his home a few nights later for dinner. And it was him and his lover and me and my camera woman, uh, cause I only traveled with pretty women cause see, I'm, I'm not gay. Um, so we had Ewald Galton's who was clearly gay and was a government informant. You had a guy, Marcus Baumeister, who was clearly Jewish and a government informant. You had a Greek guy with googly eyes, crazy, googly eyes. I don't remember his name. I just remember the googly eyes. Uh, you had a woman, there was one woman and she she wasn't half bad looking uh, in the group. And then you had the only one of those guys who turned out not to be a government agent was this blonde kid, the only one there who looked the part of a true Aryan, like Nazi youth kind of kid, blonde kid, maybe 19, uh, bulldog jaw. Bright blonde hair, bulldog john he wore a literal brown shirt. And uh, he didn't speak in English. He was the one who didn't speak English, so he would always ask me a question through one of the others. He was like, <laughs> And then they would say, uh, Helmet wants to know how come you Jews run everything and why must you murder everybody? It's like, oh, well, Helmet, let me, let me tell you, Helmet. Um, that idiot kid was the only one who actually was the only true believer in the group. All the rest were government agents. But, you know, I didn't do anything with these guys. Uh, just hung out, had beers with them, and had dinner with Altins and his lover. I won't say what happened after that. Let's just say, the dessert surpassed the main course, um, but look—it it, was—it was fun. It was an experience. I would have done the same thing if I could have uh, hung out with like some some other kind of cell. You know, the only time I said no when I was in Japan, this uh, Japanese guy came up to me. Uh, it was my first trip to Japan. I would have been early '95. This guy came up to me and asked if I wanted to go hang out with the Japanese PLO representatives, the Ali bars there in, in Tokyo. And I was like, Nah, I got nothing to say. I—I I don't know nothing about the Middle East, and I don't want to know. I don't want to know an Arab. I don't want to know uh, a Sabra. I don't want to know any of them. I think they thought that I would hang out with the PLO and talk about it. And here's why Israel must be destroyed. And if we destroy Auschwitz, we've destroyed Israel. Um, I couldn't care less about Middle East politics. And I, don't, I personally don't care for Akbar's anyway. Uh, most Akbar's would probably want to blow me up, upside unseen. So I don't, have, I don't want to have tea with them. And Akbar's don't drink. That's the other thing. I'm not going to hang out with people who don't drink. You know, right now, my non-drinking period, I am so fucking dull. I've gone out a couple times over the last few months. And I feel, I feel how dull I am outside the house, how thoroughly unimpressive I am at the moment. I try not to go out these days because I am so unimpressive. People are like, oh boy, I'm about to meet David Cole. And then I'm like, this is a wet fucking blanket sipping on iced tea. Um, I don't like going out when I'm not drinking. I have still Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving is going to be when, uh, it, 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 it's going to be when, oh yeah, if you're still with me, if, you, if you've, if you come this far, okay, my birthday is September 2nd, second. Uh, and if you want to give me anything, uh, you know, something easy, you don't have to ship, you know. Anything
12: one of the top images but this is uh the not so doesn't look that bad but not so flattering this is the the picture Adam that Green canary mission and the Kevin jewish Barrett. groups used to attack oh, no
2: yeah, a, they always put
12: those at the top
2: of the google results but I, I didn't think it was too bad so maybe they they don't hate you as much as as you would think
12: they would <laughs> well, if they would have got one that looked too much worse it would have you know their bias would have shown uh-huh. but there you go but yes, you, you linked uh, my video, Rabbis explain the Judeo... Well, I'm sorry, the Abrahamic Judeo takeover conspiracy. And you say here, you think Adam paints with way too broad a brush and his analysis lacks nuance and balance. So so hopefully I can bring you some of that nuance here as we uh, follow up on our, our last talk. Um, in, in what way am I painting with too broad a brush? Because that video basically is just clips of rabbi after rabbi saying that their agenda is to get the whole world to worship their God. So what's too broad about that?
2: Well, uh, I wasn't so much thinking about just that particular video, but about your sort of Abrahamic uh, approach in general. Mm -hmm. And the broad brush I would say is lumping together all forms of Jewish messianic millenarianism, which are, in fact, uh, very, very different from each other and often at war with each other. For example, Marxism is a form of Jewish-inspired messianic millenarianism that, in most ways, is radically opposed to Zionism, which is another extremist form of radical messianic millenarianism that's a spin-off of Judaism. And both Marxism and Zionism uh, are somewhat different from the satanic uh freemasonic uh black magical uh spin-offs of uh of, of jewish messianic millenarianism coming out of people like shabtai Zvi. although of course that did inspire zionism Marxism, not so much, I think. Although perhaps the revolt against God uh, started there. So anyway, these different manifestations, uh, and and finally, we should say that that Judaism is a lot more than just uh, this messianic millenarianism. There's all kinds of stuff going on uh, in the Jewish community among the various types of of uh, the rabbis, the various thinkers, very identify as jewish or now the center of gravity of the jewish community so there's all of this stuff going on much of it radically opposed to these other things going on and it seems to me that what you've done is you've kind of lumped all of this behind a certain like you know uh, chabad um, approach to the messianic millenarian issue and i i think the chabad approach is just has very little to do with Marxism. It even has not all that much to do with Zionism. It has, uh, I'm not sure how much it has to do with uh, Shabtai V and Satanism. Uh, so, and, and it's certainly, the, all that stuff has very little to do with the uh, the, the universalist uh, monotheisms, which, you know, basically Christianity and Islam.
0: Okay, so I think that's going to do it for this evening. Take care. Bye-bye.